Right, if you find one king, 17. I said right, didn't I? I was doing so well. So well. Never mind. Uh, 1 Kings, chapter 17. And uh, if you find verse 10. And, and we'll read from verse, from, from verse 10 down to verse 16. So Elijah arose and went to Zarephath. When he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of meal in a jar and a little oil in a cruise. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Fear not, go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me and afterward make for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, the jar of meal shall not be spent and the cruise of oil shall not fail until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of meal was not spent, neither did the cruise of oil fail, according to the word of the Lord which he spoke by Elijah. So, <coughs> we saw last time that Elijah now receives guidance. He's told by the Lord, off to Zarephath, and I've commanded a widow to feed you there. And um, what we're going to see in tonight's study is, is, is the whole area about the Lord being our provider and being in absolute control of everything. All right. You have to remember that Elijah was counting on the fact that everything that was happening, the Lord was in control. The Lord said, there's going to be a widow there, and she's going to feed you. So off he goes to Zarephath, and he arrives at the gate of the city, and there she is. She didn't know he was coming, but God knew that she would be there. And uh, so today, we're really going to you know, be seeing about God providing, and, and, and the way that he does so, the way that, that kind of works. And uh, but let's... Let's just underline the situation that this widow is in. She, she's collecting sticks in order to prepare a fire to cook her and her son um, her, their last meal in the full expectation that soon both of them would be dead of starvation. She has a handful of meal and a tiny little bit of oil. And that's it. She knows that when that is gone, that is it. Her and her son are going to die of starvation. And at the point where Elijah meets her, she's simply gathering sticks to go home and to prepare the last meal. And then her and her son were just going to have to wait until they died of starvation. Now, her situation tells us two things. 
The first thing it tells us is that this drought that, uh, that Elijah has proclaimed to Ahab, that this drought is well underway. Can you see, this drought has now been going on a long time because the food produce is being affected. So a long time has passed since he went to see Ahab and then was sent to Brook Cherith. So what we can know is that Elijah was at Brook Cherith for a long time. And it's only when we get to this portion, knowing that from the time that Elijah went to Ahab to this point, the drought has been going on long enough for there to be famine starting. So that tells us that Elijah was at Brook Cherith, just sitting there cogitating, <laughs> all on his own, with the Lord. He was there for a long time. He wasn't just there for a month or two. He was there for a significant amount of time. And indeed, the kind of the time period that we're going to be dealing with in Elijah is kind of three and a half years. Uh, it's three and a half years from his proclamation to Ahab to when the drought actually ends. We see that from James, as we'll see in uh, a few studies' time. And uh, so he was there for a long time. And this tells us that we, we mustn't expect God's dealings in our lives to be swift. We saw that Cherith was a place of death to self. And we mustn't expect this to be overnight. You know, you don't just kind of, you know, sort of go home and say, Lord, right now I understand that you've called me to carry the cross. Lord, you want me to die to myself. You want me to share in your death. Right, Lord, okay, here I am, do it. And then expect to wake up the next morning. And it's done. It doesn't work like that. It takes time. And if you think about it, what really are God's dealings all about in our lives? It's to bring us to what the Bible again and again and again calls maturity. The idea of wholeness, maturity and growth, really growing up into Jesus. That's the terminology that Paul the Apostle uses. And of course, maturity requires time. And you can't get away from it. Whether it's wine, or cheese, or Christians. You only get maturity over a long period of time. I mean, for instance, take these really expensive wines. Why, why are they so expensive? Because they've been stored for so long. Therefore, they're more expensive. Or another example, I was reading a thing, believe it or not, the other day about various kind of whiskies. Don't ask me why it was just there, so I read it. And of course the point is that the really expensive ones, they've been matured for years. So I mean the point is that you go and buy a, a standard cheapo old whiskey, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm no expert, but as I say a teacher's or a bell's or something like that, you know, just your, your standard stuff. And well, I mean, you know, they're still expensive, but they're not as expensive as, you know, sort of like the really expensive ones because they're made and then they're, they're shipped out and transported, blah, blah, blah. There's no storage. But when you get the, you know, the really expensive ones, Glenfiddich and stuff like that, the 12-year-old ones, because they've been standing, just, just sitting in the vats for 12 years, they're supposed to taste nicer. So you pay more for them because you've got all the storage costs, all right? So the point is, it's the same with cheese. You know, I mean, cheese isn't ready until it's moving. I say this as a cheese lover, and that takes time. You know when a piece of cheese is ready, all right? And it's, uh, it's that night, where every, every night, you, you check that it's on the left-hand side in the fridge. 
Now, and every morning you open the fridge door. Now, the morning you open the fridge door and it's moved to the right-hand side of the fridge, you know that that cheese is ready. Can you see? Maturity always takes time, and it's exactly the same for a Christian. Because what's maturity all about? It's about things like patience. It's about things like endurance. And one of my favourite words, fortitude. Fortitude. All these are character things. And of course, character only builds over a period of time. And, uh, you know, there's the verses in Romans 5, you know, which I refer to them so many times. When Paul talks about, you know, endurance produces character. And it's only as God deals in our lives over a long period of time that the nature of Jesus is more and more formed in us. And of course, for Elijah, as we've already seen, Brooke Cherith was only the start. So although he was there for quite a long time, <coughs> nevertheless, it was only the start. Because where has he gone now? To Zarephath. And what does Zarephath mean? We saw in the Hebrew it means refining. And this goes on continuously through our lives. And of course, you know, we saw as well, didn't we, that Elijah is now going to be fed and watered and looked after by a Gentile widow. Now, I mean, more anathema to a Jew you could not have got. You know, so now Elijah's got to run the gamut of all the whisperings behind his back and, all, you know, all that sort of stuff because God's dealing with him. He's reducing him. He's, he's cutting his pride down. He's taking all his self-righteousness away so that Elijah really comes to realise his nothingness before the Lord. So that's the first thing that this situation that she is in, the first thing it tells us is that Elijah was at Brook Cherith for a long time and that God's dealings in our lives, they don't happen overnight, not in the slightest. Now, the second thing it tells us is this. The drought that's going on was a judgment on Israel. It was a judgment on God's own people because they were worshipping Baal and going after other gods and they cast off God's laws and they didn't want to know anymore. So this drought is a judgment that has specifically come on Israel, God's people. But here we're seeing that this drought is equally affecting the surrounding Gentiles as well. And what you've got there, obviously Israel signifies God's people, the Gentiles signify the world. And that what you've got here is an example of the fact that the world can be suffering because of the sin of God's people. These Gentiles were suffering a drought because of a judgment on God's people. And it is true that the world can suffer if God's people, the church, are not right with him. Now, I'm not in the slightest bit suggesting that the mess that the world is in is because of the failure of the church. That would be daft, you know, that that, that, that entire mess out there is the fault of the church. I'm not saying that at all. The world is in such a mess because of its sin and rebellion against God. But what I do say, given some of Jesus' teaching, is that there is a link between the state of God's people and the state of the church. Go to Matthew and uh, find the old Sermon on the Mount 
and uh, we want Matthew chapter 5. <coughs> and something here that Jesus says, and I think you'll get the idea. <coughs> Matthew chapter 5, and uh, we'll read verse 13. Look at this, he says, You are the salt of the earth. But if salt had lost its taste, how shall its saltness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trodden underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill can't be hid. Nor do men light a lamp and put it, up and put it under a bushel, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works that's interesting, isn't it? Not that they may hear your evangelism, although they need to hear that as well, but that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, the two things that Jesus is saying there, first of all, we are the salt of the earth. Now, in the ancient world, you know, I mean, this doesn't mean so much to us now, we've got refrigeration, but of course the ancient world didn't have that. In fact, they hardly had it 100 years ago, did they? And one of the main preservatives they used was salt. If they were transporting meat or if they had meat and they wanted it to, you know, to not go off, especially in the, you know, kind of hot climate, they used to cover it with salt and it, it preserved it. Otherwise, it would go putrid. And uh, so what we've got here is a picture that God's people are actually um, a preservative in the world holding back the putrefaction of sin. And indeed, in Thessalonians, Paul talks about the fact that the Antichrist cannot actually appear, i.e. Satan cannot make his great tribulation move until the Holy Spirit present in the church has gone. Because obviously the church goes at the rapture, then the Antichrist arises. So can you see a connection, at least, between the state of the world and the state of the church? Now, I repeat, I'm not saying that if the church was completely right with God that the world wouldn't be in a mess. Of course it would. But what I'm saying is the world is in a little bit less of a mess than it would be if Christians weren't here. But the more faithful God's people are, the more the evil of the world is just held back a bit. And again, Jesus says, look, you know, you are the light of the world. The world is in darkness. But obviously, the more we as believers shine in faithfulness to God, the more the darkness in the world is pushed back. Again, it doesn't mean that if the church was shining perfectly for Jesus, that there wouldn't be any darkness in the world. Of course there would. But what I'm establishing is that here we see that the Gentiles were affected by a judgment on God's people. And so therefore, if the church is not right with God, if Christians are not being faithful, then the world is going to suffer to a certain extent. So therefore, there is a link, there's a connection between the state of the church and the state of the world. But I repeat again, I'm not saying that if the church was absolutely right with God that the world would follow and everyone would fall down and get converted and it would be perfect. I'm not saying that at all. But can you see that there's a linkage? When Christians are not faithful to the Lord, then we must accept responsibility for the fact that the world is that little bit darker 
that little bit more putrid as a result of our salt losing its saltness or our light being hid under a bushel. And there is a connection there. Now, think of it in these terms. You see, many people, I mean, one of the ways that you bring light into the world is that Jesus said, you are the light of the world. So we follow him, we are the light of the world. How does that work? Well, because he is the light of the world and he's in us. You know, I mean, all the children's choruses, the very simple ones, you know, about a sunbeam, a sunbeam, Jesus wants me for a sunbeam. And being a bit of a, you know, sort of like, in Sunday school, I used to sit there, you know, sort of like an anglia, an anglia, Jesus wants me for an anglia, you know, because I was just that cheeky, you know, but a sunbeam. And the idea of Jesus shining out through us, it's a picture that is um, a good thing. Now, the point is that the more people who get converted, the more the light of Jesus shines in the world. But the problem is, for so many Christians, when they get saved, they're not brought into real 100% discipleship, i.e. they don't end up really sold out to Jesus. And in many ways, <coughs> they continue to be part of the problem rather than being part of the answer. You see the difference. And the idea is, is that when we come to Jesus, that process in our life starts, which makes us part of the answer to the sin of the world, not part of the problem of the sin of the world. And what I'm saying is that so many people, they get saved, they come to the Lord, but they continue to be completely worldly. Now, worldliness, you know, I mean, there's, what is worldliness? What does the Bible mean by a worldly or a carnal Christians? When, you know, when we come on to look through the letter of James, uh, you know, we'll see in great detail. But worldliness basically boils down, you know, to the fact that Christians who think and act like the world. Can you say, yeah, I mean, they're, they're kind of, uh, you know, sort of like they talk the Lord, they go to church. But if you look at their lives and their thinking, really, they're, they're still in the world. They don't demonstrate Jesus by a transformed life. So many people, what they do is they add Jesus and church and that into their life, but basically, they still end up what they were before, but obviously minus some of the grosser sins. You know, I mean, if they were stealing, probably they stopped stealing. If they were sleeping around, they, you know, sort of like give the old chastity a go and stuff like that. If they were drug takers, they stopped that. Or, you know, if they were violent, you know, kind of that goes. But at rock bottom, they're no different to the many millions of perfectly respectable, law-abiding people in this country who are heading to Lake of Fire. There's nothing gross about their lives in that sense, but all that sin of the world in our hearts is still there. And can you see Christians who continue to think and act in a worldly manner, all right? I.e., <coughs> there's an external change in their lives, gross sins go, <coughs> and their lifestyle changes a bit, but there's not that internal change in them. And, of course, that is no good. And of course, what happens is that when you get Christians in a nation, or indeed the whole world, if they're not being faithful, then what's happening is that we're robbing the world, that unsaved world out there, of the demonstration of the Lord that he wants them to have. Go to John 17, and uh, this is part of the prayer that, that Jesus prayed 
in Gethsemane. And there is one quite astounding bit here. This is John, John's Gospel, chapter 17, and we'll start reading from verse 20. And Jesus says, I do not pray for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word. Now that includes you and I, and every believer today, through their word, these men wrote the Bible. And it's only because the New Testament got written that the gospel got preached and we got saved, all right? So this is a prayer, not just for the disciples there and then, but for us now and every Christian. And this is the prayer, that they may all be one. Even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, because Jesus lives in us, in all his glory, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me, and have loved them even as you have loved me. Now, can you see what Jesus is saying? He's talking here about oneness between his people. And he says that when that oneness is there, then the world will believe. Can you see? That what he's saying is that as unbelievers see that oneness and love between us, that is a very large part of what is going to affect them in such a way that they come into the kingdom. And here, what we're seeing from, you know, here, is that God has given the world the right to have a demonstration that the gospel is true. And that demonstration is the oneness between us. And if that oneness isn't there, if that faithfulness isn't there, then the world is being robbed of the chance that the Lord wants it to have for people to get saved. Now, obviously, as soon as we talk about this oneness, a lot of people say, yes, that's why the ecumenical movement is so important. Because the ecumenical movement, let's all get together and be one, is based on these verses. But obviously we've got to ask, well, what is the basis of this unity, this oneness? And the point is that if you take verse 20 to 23 out of context, you can make it mean what you like. But now we'll read from verse 17 the verses immediately before. We're saying, right, Jesus has said that the world must have a demonstration of his power through us, and that that demo is our unity. Now, what is that unity? Verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, and for their sake I consecrate myself that they also uh, that they also may be consecrated in truth. So can you see what is the basis of that unity? It's unity in the truth. And what is the truth? It's God's word. Jesus said, your word is truth. So the demonstration that the world has a right to the demonstration that our nation has a right to, the demonstration that Chigwell has a right to, is to see believers completely united together. And what is it they're in unity about? It's the corporate living 
in submission and obedience to the word of God. Because if we do, then we won't be worldly. Then we're not being part of the problem, then we're actually becoming part of the answer. And that's all down to faithfulness. So, what we've seen here is that the Gentile nations around Israel were suffering because of Israel's unfaithfulness. And that is something that Christians must be willing to take on board. We are letting the world down by not being faithful to the Lord. And if God's people are out of fellowship with him, then there's a knock-on effect and the world suffers as a result. And here, the Gentile nations are in drought. Why? Because Israel was in drought because of its unfaithfulness to the Lord. So there's a connection there that we need to take on board. Anyway, that's what the widow's situation tells us, all right? So, Elijah meets up with her at the gate of the city, all right? Remember, she's gathering sticks, she's got a handful of meal, tiny little bit of oil, uh, she's got a little boy, a son, she's gathering sticks, she's going to go home, she's going to light a fire, she's going to cook a last meal for her and her son, and then they're just going to wait for death, all right? Now, the point is that God is providing for Elijah. Because the Lord is my provider. The Lord always provides for his people, obviously, if they're in his will. And uh, we saw God provide for him at Brook Cherith. The ravens brought food, and there was the brook, so no problem. And God has partly, specifically said to Elijah, now, go to Zarephath, because that widow, I'm going to provide for you through her. Now, we're talking about supernatural provision here, and God says, she is going to be the means that I'm going to use to provide for you, all right? And, um, and also, the Lord knows that this widow, as we're going to see a bit later on, is going to get saved. This widow is going to become a believer. And, uh, and in this, what happens here, we're going to see a very clear example of the principle of God's provision for his people. This is all very well saying, God will provide. I mean, crikey, you can chuck that around all you like, God will provide. But I mean, what does it mean and what are the principles? You know, if someone's going to say, right, well, therefore, I want God to provide for me, what are the principles that apply that if you're faithful to those principles, then God will do his bit? That's what we're going to see now. And this, you know, kind of God providing, okay, uh, we're going to see that, you know, it, it's financial and material, but also it's the same with spiritual growth. We're going to be seeing here not just the picture of God providing financially and materially, but it's the way that God provides for us, even in regards to growing in him. And also, we're going to see that there is a direct link in the Bible between spiritual growth and the area of money. Now, that statement would come as a great surprise to many, many Christians, but I'm going to establish that link today, you know, beyond all doubt. And uh, I've just got a little note here, and it says, anyone with an unsurrendered wallet might be advised to leave now. <laughs> all right. So, anyway, now, what we're going to establish are three principles here. Now, listen to them very carefully, and we're going to see how these principles work out in this situation with Elijah and the widow. Now, remember these things. Number one, you receive what you need and don't have by giving what you do have to the Lord. 
I'll say it again. This is principle number one. You receive what you need, but don't have, by giving what you do have to the Lord. Now, number two. You give to the Lord by giving to people. You see that quite clearly. And then thirdly, you give out of the motive of love and obedience to God and not the motive of merely getting what you need. Now, can you see? Because there's a twist at the end. And, I mean, there's lots of teaching around which basically goes like this. Well, I mean, if you want to get rich, then you be generous. Now, that, that is ridiculous. Because the motive behind that is daft. Well, it's not daft, it's evil. It's evil. The Bible makes it quite clear. It is wrong to want to be rich. Now, it is not wrong to be rich. Again, we're going to come on to James eventually, and you know we'll see all this. It is not wrong to be rich, but it is wrong to want to be rich. If you end up rich because God's made you rich, no problem. But to want to be rich is wrong. So, I'll go over that one more time. You receive what you need and don't have by giving what you do have to the Lord. You give to the Lord by giving to people. Because obviously God don't need anything, does he? And you give out of the motive of love and obedience to God and not the motive of merely getting what you need. Or if anyone took the principles we're going over tonight and made out of them, well, okay, you know, I mean, I haven't got as much as I wish I did have. I want more. Right, I'll give more, and then I'll get more. I mean, that is folly. That's not what it's about, okay? Now, let's, let's see how it works out in this situation. Now, the woman needs food and water. All right? She's about to run out. She's about to cook her last meal, you know, and... and Obviously, the water is getting slack as well because of the drought. So the woman needs water and food, and she's about to run out of both. Elijah needs water and food, but he hasn't got any. <laughs> you see, he hasn't got a little cruise of oil and a handful of meal. So the woman needs food and water. She's about to run out. Elijah needs food and water too, but he hasn't got anything. Now, Elijah is the Lord's representative in that situation because the Lord is in that situation in Elijah. Now, the woman knows that God is moving here, and she probably gets the first inkling here that, that he's drawing her to himself. Let's just read verse 12, where she says, As the Lord your God lives. So, so she, knew that God, she knew that God was working, but at this point, Elijah, you know, God was Elijah's God, not hers. We'll see in the weeks to come that she actually gets saved. So this woman knows that God is, is moving, like... Now, also, the Lord doesn't need food and water. He's all right, thank you very much, all right? Uh, but the Lord wants her to surrender everything she's got to him. So let's build this picture up. The woman needs food and water. She's only got a little bit. It's about to run out. Elijah needs food and water, but he hasn't got anything at all. Uh, Elijah is the representative of the Lord. Um, but the Lord doesn't need food and water because he's got everything that he needs. But he wants this woman to surrender everything she has to him. So, this woman gives to the Lord by giving to Elijah. Now, I don't know if you noticed when we were reading round that, you know, down here, that what Elijah says, on the, on the, on the surface, this, this looks a little bit kind of wrong, you know, what Elijah's doing here. 
Because he's aware that this woman has only got a tiny little bit of food for herself and her son. And Elijah says, right, go home, prepare it, but give me some thirst. Now, that might look incredibly selfish, but of course the point is Elijah knows what God is doing in her. You see that? So it's, it's not selfish that Elijah says, you know, bring, bring it here, let me have mine first. Elijah knows exactly what God is doing, you see. So the point is, this woman, she gives to the Lord everything she's got by giving everything she's got to Elijah. It weren't much, but what was the result of it? The result of it that throughout the rest of the drought, they had everything that they needed every day. It didn't matter how many of handfuls of meal she took, there was always another handful there. It didn't matter how many times she emptied that cruise of oil, the next day there was more in it, one portion. See? So can you see that principle? So what it's boiling down to is this. She gave the Lord what she did have, the very last of her food and the oil. And she did this by giving it to Elijah, who was in need. And notice that Elijah was in need because of his faithfulness to God. He was only in Zarephath because God had sent him there. And then thirdly, this widow, she did this without any certainty of the outcome. So it wasn't that, you know, I mean, she wasn't here rolling up her sleeve saying, right, oh, this is brilliant, because if I give it all to Elijah, then God will give me loads and loads back. She wasn't sure about that at all. Can you see? She wasn't giving it out of the wrong motive. She just somehow knew that it was right to do. So what she was doing here wasn't a selfish act, all right? So the principles, let's go over it again. You receive what you need and don't have by giving what you do have to the Lord. You give to the Lord by giving to people, because God don't need anything. And you give out of the motive of love and obedience to God, and not out of the motive, motive of merely getting what you need. That would be selfish. Now, the point is, this principle applies not just to finances. This principle applies to every area of the Christian life. The truth is, do you remember what Jesus said? Give, and it shall be given. All right, give, and it shall be given. And the giving comes before receiving. And of course, ultimately, we receive more of the Lord in our own personal lives <coughs> as we give more of ourselves to other people. See what I mean? The more you give yourself in service to others, the more you will receive of the Lord in your own life. Remember, you get what you don't have by giving away what you do have. So one looks at oneself and thinks, right, okay, yeah, I know that the Lord is taking me along, I'm growing, but my goodness, there's not enough of the Lord in me. So how do you get more? Give away everything of the Lord in you to other people. Can you see? Lay your life down in service to others. And the more you give away of yourself, the more of Jesus you'll receive. Um, the more you put into worship, the more you'll get out of it. It's always give, and it shall be given. But of course, you know, I mean, if people come along to worship, merely they want to be blessed. So they sit there, right, bless me. You know, and then other people aren't, 
doing very much, then they go away, oh, fat lot of good they are, they didn't bless me. Now, no wonder someone like that gets nowhere. Now, the point, they're in worship for selfish reasons, they wanted to get blessed. Now, why are we in worship? To bless the Lord, not to get blessed ourselves, to bless the Lord. So, you really put yourself into worship and worship the Lord. You know, praying, sharing, singing, clapping, dancing, or whatever, all right? And what you'll find is, the more you forget yourself and give yourself away in worship, you'll come out really blessed. You see? Um, it works in regards to fellowship with each other. I mean, some people, they come along and their idea of fellowship is they think, right, I'm here, have fellowship with me. <laughs> they sit there and they're waiting for you to have fellowship with them. Well, come on, have fellowship with me. The emphasis, do you remember in the Church Life series, all going, going back away now, aren't we? When we actually looked at the talk, what is fellowship, we saw that the Greek word was koinonia, and it means a partnership. But in the Greek, the emphasis of that partnership isn't the bit you get out of it, it's the bit you put into it. So at the very heart of the word fellowship, it's a giving thing. It is indeed a two-way thing, but the emphasis is on what you're putting in your bit of the pool, as it were. So, come along to fellowship, forget about yourself, give yourself to other people. And the more you give into it, the more you will get out of it. I mean, it's a give, and it shall be given. Now, obviously, if you came along and said, right, okay, well, I'm not getting blessed, right, I've got to give more of myself, then I'll be more blessed. And so you end up giving more of yourself in order to, to get blessed. I mean, again, the motive is wrong. But forget about yourself, concentrate on the Lord and others, and suddenly the blessing comes. Give, and it shall be given. And, uh, you know, I mean, one of the little perks that comes from that, well, obviously, we all have problems there. You know, we've all got things we could get all depressed about, and that. But the point is, the more we forget about ourselves and concentrate on other, put, put your problems to one side and concentrate on sharing the burden of other people's problems. And as soon as you do that, you'll notice that suddenly your problems have shrunk. They, they've got down to manageable size. <coughs> I'm not saying that you realise you haven't got any problems, because we've all got problems, but the point is, the more you concentrate on your problem, the bigger it gets. Goliath. But the more you turn away looking at Goliath and look at the Lord in other people and serve them, you'll find that what you're seeing then is the Lord and, and Goliath shrinks down to the size he actually is. Because, in, you know, his true size is not relative to us. It's relative to the Lord. And that problem is nothing in God's eyes. He can handle it. Can you see? So, therefore, you know, the more we give, forget about ourselves and give, and sacrifice ourselves, the more we're going to receive whatever it is in whatever area of life that we need at any one time, all right? But in regards to this principle, give and it shall be given, and we've seen that it applies to every area of the Christian life, but what we need to realise is that the Word of God, in regards to this principle, concentrates on the aspect not of giving time or giving yourself or stuff like that. I mean, it refers to that as well, but the Bible's main concentration of this principle is in the area of money. In the area of money. This principle, give and it shall be given, if you read through the Bible, it's highlighting money far more than anything else. And uh, what we're going to see now is that the Bible actually links financial giving with spiritual blessing.
And, uh, you know, now you're not about to hear prosperity doctrine for me, don't worry about that. But I do want to establish the link in the Bible between financial giving and receiving spiritual blessing. And the reason I think that the Bible homes in on the financial side so much is because such giving <coughs> is often the bottom line of discipleship. You'll find in most things there's a bottom line, isn't there? There's always a, a when push comes to shove in regards to everything. And we're really going to see that the Bible, in many ways, considers finances as the bottom line of discipleship. And I'm talking here not just about giving, because yeah, I'm an, you know, I can walk past someone, you know, a busker who's homeless and toss 5p in his cap. We're going to be talking here about sacrificial stuff. Not just giving, but giving sacrificially. Because the point is, if a believer is really giving in a sacrificial way, then the chances are, I don't say without fail every time, but the chances are that their general self-giving and service of others is pretty good as well. You see what I mean? If someone is giving sacrificially financially, you'll probably find that they're giving sacrificially in regards to every area of life. Do you see that? And again, I want to emphasize that here I'm talking about sacrificial stuff. Um, I mean, think of it. You can, I mean, give, but in a completely disproportionate manner to what you've actually got. So that you can give and therefore truly say, I give but giving in such a way that it's not sacrificial at all. You, you know, you can give token amounts. <coughs> I mean, for one person, uh, a fiver might be a token amount. It's completely disproportionate to what they've got. No sacrifice involved. For other people, £5,000 might be mere token giving. Can you see well, it's why there's no rules or regulations? But the Bible does talk about giving sacrificially. And therefore, one can give a, a kind of a token amount that is nothing compared to what you've actually got. Go to Mark 12. Let's, let's see something that Jesus observed in the temple one day. Mark chapter 12 and find verse 41. Mark chapter 12 and let's read from verse 41. And Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and watched the multitude putting money into the treasury. The rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two copper coins which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and he said, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the treasury. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had her whole living. Now, I want to emphasize, I'm not saying and the Bible indeed does not say that giving ought to be sacrificial the whole time. 
it's not saying that it's totally wrong for Christians to ever use their money on themselves. You know, we're not saying that every week, you know, that the whole time, all your giving must be really sacrificial so that you never go on holiday, you know, you're walking around in rags, you know, you only drive old bangers, you know, you only live in slums. That's not what, you know, what we're saying at all. But what we are saying is that in giving, unless the sacrificial element is there at times, you could live your whole Christian life and you could get to the end of it and say, I have been a faithful giver. But the Lord's answer will be, well, great, but was it ever sacrificial? Because someone who sticks 10p in every week is a, a faithful giver, they're giving every week. But what an insult to the Lord. Can you see, so that's sacrificial, but for someone else, £5,000 might be an insult. If you've got someone who's earning thousands and thousands of pounds a week, as some people do, what an insult to merely put five grand aside for the Lord when you're bringing in, you know, 50 grand a week or something. And some people are mega rich, I can't, you know, conceive of that. But can you see the sacrificial element does need to be there somewhere. Give, and it shall be given. And it must be said that for most people, the wallet is the last thing about themselves that actually gets converted. I mean, there's a sense in which when you're converted, you're born again, and obviously you're born again. You come to Jesus, you're born again, That's it's happened bang there and then for all time, that can't happen again. It's done. Boom. But there's another sense, not in regards to being born again, but we talk about being converted. There's a sense in which, okay, you get converted, but then the rest of the Christian life is kind of the rest of you getting really converted. Can you see what I mean? Right, okay, now we'll go to this area. For many, many people, the wallet very, you know, does not get converted. Or, you know, maybe that they've been, been Christians years and years and years and years and years, but they're living financially in no different way than they would have done if they hadn't got saved. Oh, they just assume that most of their money is theirs. Now, of course, what is the truth if you're a Christian? The truth is your money is not yours. My money is not mine. It is the Lord's and he has left it in my stewardship, which is an entirely different thing. I mean, imagine if you were kind of like one of these, um, you know, like really rich people, you know, who earn 50,000 pounds a week, right? And you've got a big mansion. In fact, you've got big mansions all over the world and you've got a butler in every mansion, all right? And of course, you're not there very much because you're, you know, you've got to fit all your mansions in, one in Florida, the one in Hawaii. So any one mansion, you're only there a little bit but a butler's there all the time. Now you'd be a bit miffed, wouldn't you, if you turned up one day at one of these mansions and the butler told you where to go because it's his. I'm not having you coming in my home. Now, the point is it's not the butler's. It belongs to the bloke who owns it. The butler is merely the steward of it while he's not there. Now that's the situation you and I are in. Our money isn't our own, it's the Lord's. I mean, but we can treat it as if it's our own if we want. It gives us free will to do that. But you get the point. Our money is the Lord's. But very often, that's the, you know, one of the later realizations that people come to. Uh, again, one of the reasons I think that the Lord really boils money down to a rock bottom issue, you know, a, a when push comes to shove thing. Now, bear in mind too that in the ancient world, and also this would apply to many countries today as well, that money wasn't the only currency. Um, you know, in the ancient world, more or less everywhere, but in lots of places today, uh, it wasn't just money, but it was goods. 
I think you'll remember when we did the studies about, you know, tithing is, is tithing scriptural or whatever. We saw that tithing was Israel's tax system. So there's no tithing for us. Well, there is, but we pay our tax to the tax man, all right. But we saw that tithing in the Old Testament was tax. And that they could pay in money or kind. If they had money, you paid money. But a lot of people, you know, in the ancient world and that, I mean, they didn't have money, they had so many sheep. I, you know, they bartered in sheep. They went into town and, right, I'll swap this sheep for a week's supply of groceries or something like that. So the point is that they were free to give in kind. And that was a large part of the Old Testament system. So but what we've got here is giving financially or in kind, all right? You know, so giving can be financial, give money, or it can be giving something. Both are equal in God's sight. And it's, it's no different today, except that obviously in a modern Western culture, the balance is tipped towards financial giving. That's the main push of it. The reason being that we live in a capitalist system. Our system is based around money in a way that Old Testament Israel and the ancient world wasn't. I mean, to this day, there's a republic somewhere. I can't, I can't place the name of it, but its currency is bananas. And I kid you not, it's near Barbados. Barbados. The Davis is bubble bath there. <laughs> yeah, and the currency there is bananas. You know, I mean, presumably you go and buy a car with a lorry load of bananas or something. You know, but the point is that for us in a capitalist system, although giving in kind is a valid thing, obviously the push is currency. Because obviously, if your giving is partially to, to meet needs that other people have financially, then the point is, if they've got bills to pay, I mean, they can't, for instance, you know, write to the phone, you know, phone company, and say, you know, well, I mean, will will 500 bananas do, or or do you need 550? Can you see, money is the currency, so so money has got to be, you know, the main giving in our lives, as it were, and um, so, you know, but the main point is this: <coughs> this widow who took. Elijah in. She came into God's blessings and God's power. I she lived supernaturally after this because that meal never ran out and neither did the cruise of oil. The supernatural power and blessings of God came into her life because she gave sacrificially. Now that doesn't mean that she bought God's power. You can't. It's not a transaction. I mean, she didn't know the outcome. She gave simply because Elijah was in need. And even though she didn't know the Lord personally at this point, she knew that Elijah did. And so she did that. She knew that Elijah's God wanted her to do that. So she obeyed it. So therefore, because of sacrificial giving in her life, she came into the supernatural power of God. Now again, I want to say, I'm not saying that you can buy the supernatural power of God, but that link is definitely there in the Bible. Now let's see it stated as explicitly as you can get. Go to Luke, the Gospel of Luke, and if you find chapter 16, Gospel of Luke, and find 
chapter 16 and I'm going to start reading from verse 10 so Luke 16 starting at verse 10 and uh, this is Jesus in one of his parables moods doing parables all over the place now listen to this he who is faithful in a very little is faithful also in much and he who is dishonest in a very little is dishonest also in much it's a case there for mind who you trust isn't there our trust has got to grow between people now look at this he says if then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon who will entrust you with true riches and if you have not been faithful in that which is another's who will give you that which is your own no servant can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other you cannot serve God and mammon let me read verse 11 again if you have not been faithful in unrighteous mammon then who will entrust you with the true riches now what are the true riches the supernatural power of the Lord in our lives that is the true riches the life and the power of Jesus within us what is unrighteous mammon now mammon is the Aramaic word for riches um, it's, it's linked to the Hebrew word that we get Amen from. When someone prays and we say Amen, that's a Hebrew word that means so be it. But interestingly enough, it's all tied up with trust. And that is why Amen, so be it, have become how you end a prayer. One person prays and everyone else says Amen, they're saying so be it, I agree with that prayer. But what's the push behind it? We've asked the Lord for something and we trust Him to do it. So the point is about mammon, alright, is it was that which was to be trusted, leaned on and depended on. That's the push behind mammon here. And of course the thing that Jesus is saying is, who are you going to trust? Are you going to trust the Lord or are you going to trust your money? Because if your trust and security is in your money, it's not in the Lord. No matter what you say, it's not in the Lord. But if your trust is in the Lord, then who cares about money? You can be generous with it. And of course, what Jesus is saying here, until you're in right relationship with your money, you're not really going to experience the true riches, which is the power of God in our lives. Because to be tight, to be not willing to give generously as the Lord leads, leads is another way of saying that you trust your money and not the Lord. You're dependent upon your money and not the Lord. And that is a terrible insult to the Lord. Because the Lord made everything, including money. I mean, you might as well bow down and worship an idol. Can you see? Because what is idolatry? Idolatry is a relationship with a God who doesn't exist. Because idols don't exist, there's only one true God. So what is an idolater doing? He's putting his trust in a God who doesn't exist. Well, when you put your trust in money, then that money becomes your God, your idol. 
And that is why Paul, in his writings, links greed with idolatry. And you'll find that Paul equates greed and idolatry as being the same thing. Why? Because if you're greedy, your trust is in material things rather than the Lord who made them. It's the equivalent to worshipping an idol. So here, what Jesus is saying, he's saying in order to be really entrusted with the true riches, you must be in right relationship to money. And what does right relationship to money mean? It means give, and it shall be given. It doesn't mean you've got to give all your money away. It doesn't mean it's wrong to have money, but we're talking that sacrificial giving features in our lives as Christians to whatever extent the Lord wants. Whereas for many believers, I would say giving hardly features in their lives, let alone sacrificial giving. And sacrificial giving needs to feature in our lives. Go to Malachi because I'm going to continue establishing this link from various places in the Bible. Malachi, which is the last book in the Old Testament, and find chapter 3. <coughs> Malachi, chapter 3, and we're going to read from verse 8. Some very interesting terminology here. Malachi chapter 3, verse 8 to 11. He says, Will man rob God? This is God speaking through Malachi. He was a prophet. Shall, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how are we robbing you? In your tithes and offerings, you are cursed with a curse for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you, and pour down an overflowing blessing. I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Now what we've got here is that God is speaking to his people, and he says, you are robbing me. Now that's an incredible thing, you can rob God. Now I mean, obviously, you know, robbing your neighbour is bad enough, you deserve to go to prison, but here we can rob God, and it's in two areas the area of tithes and offerings. Now you'll remember from the tithing tape that we did, tithes in the Old Testament were mandatory. They were taxes, they had to be paid. But offerings were strictly free will. Strictly free will, there was no legal framework, it was up to you. And giving in the church today is not tithing, we pay our tithes, our taxes, right to the government. But the giving in the church today is free will stuff, offering that is completely free will. Now, the point is that what the law says here, I mean, obviously, if you're not paying your taxes, that's, that's bad. But here, the Lord says the fact that they weren't giving offerings was robbing him as well. And if you think about it, if someone's not even paying their taxes, they hardly like to be generous. If they're fiddling the tax man, you're not going to be generous, are you? 
Now, what's interesting is that, therefore, in verse 10, you get a commandment, bring the full tithes into the storehouse. Now, there's no commandment here about offerings, because they're free will. So, if you, if, if God commanded people to give a free will offering, that would be a nonsense. It wouldn't be free will anymore. So, what God says is, you're robbing me in two areas, tithes and the free will. Right? But he only commands them to give the tithes, because the free will stuff is free will. So I so say, if you, right, we're now having the free will offering, you must give. That's a nonsense. So the Lord only commands them to pay their tithes, because that was in the law. Free will has got to be free will. But what's interesting is that God considered that the fact that they weren't offering free will as well, was also taking from him what was his. So what we've got here is that in giving, does one have to give? No, one doesn't. You must pay your taxes, yes, but does one have to give? No, it's free will. But to not give is nevertheless robbing God, because it is his due. But what is so wonderful here is that look at the promise that is attached to faithfulness financially. He says, Put me to the test and see if I will not open the windows of heaven and pour down for you an overflowing blessing. What a promise. And what is it linked to? Faithful, sacrificial, financial handing over of your money to the Lord's call. And look, he says, I'll rebuke the devourer for you. Your vine in the field shall not fail. You see, they were under God's judgment. Because they weren't giving, they weren't getting. The economy was failing in Israel. And God says, look, if you give sacrificially, I will bless you, not only materially, but I will bless you spiritually as well with my power in your life. So again, can you see that link? The link between giving money sacrificially and the Lord's blessing in our lives. Back into the New Testament, 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians. This is Paul, and uh, find chapter 9. <coughs> 2 Corinthians, chapter 9. And uh, I'm going to read verse 1 first, and then we're going to skip down to verse 6. So, first of all, verse nine, uh, 2 Corinthians 9, verse 1, just to get the context. Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the offering for the saints. So what's the context? Giving. Now down to verse 6. And he says, uh, The point is this, He who sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Given it shall be given. Sow a little, receive a little. Sow a lot, receive a lot. And he who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Each one must do as he has made up his mind, because it's an individual decision between each person and God, and it's free will. This isn't for someone else to have input, this is a decision each one of us makes before the Lord. My giving is no one else's business, your giving is no one else's business. This is each individual before the Lord. Now, he says, so you must do as you've made up your mind, not reluctantly, that's the Greek word that you'd use for pulling out a tooth, <laughs> alright, not, not like you're going to the dentist, 
You know, I, I mean, if it's that hard to part with your money, keep it. That's what the Bible says. Uh, not under compulsion. Now, that means emotional pressure. That's important. Don't let people pressure you to meetings, big appeals for money and stuff like that. You know, the Lord's saying, uh, checks for £500 minimum. I mean, all that rubbish. That is giving under pressure, so don't. If you're ever put under pressure specifically to give, don't, <laughs> basically. Think about it. If, if later you feel it's right, yeah, fine. But don't do it on the spot if you're being pressurised. Uh, and it says, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, that word here, cheerful, is hilarious. <laughs> That's the Greek word. It means give with hilarity. It's where we get our English word from. And it means, you know, give laughing. Really please. Not, not grimacing, not, oh, oh, you know, kind of through gritted teeth. But, but joyfully, because it's, as Jesus said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And then he says, and God is able to provide you with every blessing in abundance. So he's talked about giving, Give sacrificially, and then he talks about God providing for you. Give, and it shall be given. All right? God is able to provide you with every blessing in abundance, so that you may always have enough of everything, and may provide in abundance for every good work. Now, what does that tell me? That tells me this. Whatever you've got, ultimately, in time, not necessarily at this moment, but whatever you've got now, God wants you to have more. How will you get more? By giving what you've got, then you'll get more. But why does God want to give you more? So you can give more away. Can you see? The whole point is, it's so that God can channel through us provision for other people. Because the more you give, the more you'll receive, so the more you can give. Isn't that beautiful? The way that God provides, it's brilliant. No selfishness here. None of this, well, I'm going to give to God so he gives me a Mercedes. No, that's selfishness. All right, if God says you can have a Mercedes, have one. I'm not saying that God won't okay that. But it's nothing to do with selfish, oh, I want a better lifestyle. It's not that. It's so we can give and give and give and give. Let's keep going. As it is written, he scatters abroad, he gives to the poor. That's God's nature. He showers his gifts all over the place. So if Jesus is in us, what's going to be happening? Jesus wants to shower everything all over the place through us. Now, if Jesus is living in me, I mean, he's living in you as well. But if Jesus is living in me, he's not going to use me to give away what you've got. <laughs> he's going to use me to give away what I've got. You see the principle. God is generous. So if you're going to have the life of Jesus coming through you, what is that going to result in? Generosity. His righteousness endures forever. Now look, 10. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your resources and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way for great generosity. So you won't just be enriched financially by giving, you'll be enriched in every area, spiritually, for great generosity, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the rendering of this service not only supplies the wants of the saints, but also overflows in many thanksgivings to God. So again, sacrificial giving. Give and you'll receive. Give and it shall be given. Go to Philippians. I hope I'm establishing this link in the Bible between spiritual growth and giving financially, sacrificially, because it's there in the Bible. Turn a blind eye to it all we want, but it's there. Philippians. And uh, find chapter 4. 
Now, here's, here's a verse that is taken out of context. <coughs> right, let's, let's, let's read from verse 18. I have received full payment of more. This is Paul. You remember when we did Philippians, we found out to our amazement that, that the church at Philippi was the only church that regularly supported him. You know, Christians are not very good at giving, I'm afraid. So, and, and he's writing back, and he's saying, thanks for your gift, all right? So, uh, he, he says, um, I have received full payment and more. I am filled, having received from Epaphroditus, you remember he was the messenger that they sent it through, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. This is money. A fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now, this verse 19, oh, you'll hear this verse, plastered all over Christian books, all over Christian teaching things, that they say, God will provide, my God will provide all your need. You just step out for the Lord. He'll provide whatever you need. Now, that's wrong. Because they're taking it out of context. Verse 19 is a promise. What is verse 18? the condition and a lot of God's promises are conditional if we don't fulfill the conditions you ain't going to get the promises as simple as that and in verse 18 Paul is saying thank you for your sacrificial gift to me because you have given sacrificially you can be sure therefore that God will provide for you is he? there's no carte blanche promise that God's going to provide for us in the Bible there isn't. God will provide for those who give and who serve him. You see what I mean? If we want to dive off and do our own selfish thing, the Lord's not going to provide for that. Oh, we might be able to, you know, go out, get a job, fight our way up the social ladder or whatever. But I mean, the point is, the promise of God's providing for us is conditional upon generous and sacrificial giving. Now go to Luke 14. We'll just end this section again with the words of Jesus. And I think th these verses from Jesus here will, I think, come into focus now. Luke 14. And uh, read from verse 25. <coughs> Now, this is Jesus talking to his disciples. Now, great multitudes accompanied him, and he turned to them and said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, let's just get this thing. When the Bible talks about hating your mother and father and stuff like that, okay, we understand there's a Jewish idiom here. It's a saying. It's a a thing that they had and all they were saying is that if if you're comparing one thing to something else and both are valid the thing that you hate it simply means you love the other thing more so in Jewish terminology when Jesus is talking about you've got to hate your family what he's saying is you must love me even more than them alright it was simply a Jewish phraseology, you know, the Jews who heard this knew exactly what Jesus was saying. He knew, you know, he knew they weren't literally saying that you've got to hate your family. They knew what he was saying. I 
come before your family. You must love me more than your family. That's what Jesus was saying. And uh, he says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. There's that old cross. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation, he's not able to finish, or will see it and begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and take counsel whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes, who comes to him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends an embassy and asks terms of peace. What Jesus is saying, look, think about what it means to be a disciple. Don't make your decision. Don't build a tower too quickly. Make sure you can afford it. Don't rush out and get into a fight too quickly. Check to see if he's bigger than you and has done karate. <laughs> and if he has, go and make friends with him. Don't try and beat him up. Here, what Jesus is saying, look, think about what you're doing because there are going to be consequences. And one of them is, if you follow him and are a disciple as opposed to worldly believer, if you're a disciple, then it can lead to division within your family. It's not guaranteed, but it can do. And you've got to be willing to pay that price. But now, look at this, verse 33. So therefore, whoever of you does not renounce all that he has, cannot be my disciple. You'll find that Jesus teaches specifically on certain areas of life. And every now and then, just to make sure that we realise that he hasn't missed anything out, he says you must renounce everything. So anything you haven't thought of yet, that as well. It's everything. Now can you see that in regards to sacrificial financial sharing your money around? I mean, I agree with Voltaire. I mean, I don't agree with Voltaire on very much because, I mean, you know, he was far from a Christian. But what he did say is that money is like muck. It's only any good if you spread it around. And I agree with Voltaire on that, and so does the Bible. Sacrificial giving is one of the marks of being a disciple. And uh, I want to, to raise one thing. I just raise a question. I'm not going to try and answer it. But what I'm saying is, could this be, and we must be open to anything, could there here be one of the clues as to why some churches who are less biblical than we are see more gifts of the Spirit than we do? I raise that question. You see what I mean? Could this be why some churches which are less biblical than us see more of the gifts of the Spirit? I raise that question. God honours giving, whether you're a biblical church or not. Do you see what I mean? I mean, praise God. If I, if I fulfil the condition of one promise, the Lord answers it. You know, he doesn't you know, think, oh, well, he's in totally faithful in everything else in his life. Because who of us is? But I raise that question. I often ponder it. Who knows? So, what we've seen now is that God, therefore, provides for Elijah and the widow and her son he provides for them miraculously. She gave everything she had to God via Elijah. The Lord met her knees. Now, two things. The food didn't run out, okay, but what God didn't do, I mean, he could have done. She could have turned around and seen this meal mountain coming down from heaven and landing in a back garden. She could have gone in her bathroom and found an oil lake, but she didn't. All that happened was, what little she had, 
never run out. All right. It was daily provision. Not some massive input. Daily provision, bit by bit. Remember, Jesus said, we must pray, give us this day our daily bread. Not, Lord, give me so much money next week that I won't have to pray for a year. Is he? Give us this day. When Israel collected the manna in the wilderness, it was one day's supply. That was all. You went out every day and got your food. And uh, so the point, I mean, God can provide in bulk if he likes. There are times when he does, of course. But God can provide also by just stretching out the little you do have. See? I mean, there are times when he, he gives in bulk. He provides in bulk. But usually, and this is more my experience, you just look back and you're amazed at how far what little you have went. What little you have went. I mean, God, he stretches it out. That's one way of God providing. So this was, you know, I mean, there's no big flash stuff here, is there? You know, sort of massive checks for £50,000 dropping through the post or anything like that. Just quietly, every day, the meal and the oil didn't run out. So there are quiet little miracles as well as big flashy ones. Now, I like big flashy ones, but the quiet little ones are miracles as well. Brilliant. Now, secondly, the only reason that Elijah could be used by God with the widow in this respect is that he had already proved the Lord as his provider at Port Charity. Elijah is here leading the widow into trusting God for supernatural, financial, you know, God saying, there's what you need. And the only reason he could do that was because he'd been there. He had proved God in his own life in that area. Remember, you can only lead others where you yourself have already been. And, uh, you know, I mean, often people, they need help from us and stuff like that. And you think, well, you know, dear, oh dear, I mean, you know, I, I wouldn't know what to do myself, which is fair enough. You know, I mean, probably God doesn't, you know, I mean, anyone might come to you with a problem that, you know, you, you just run it. But in many things, the best help you can be to someone is, oh, right, now when I was in that situation, here's how the Lord works in me. Here's he. So you can only lead others where you yourself have been. And because Elijah had proved God financially at Brook Cherith, he could lead the widow into it as well. And, uh, you know, but let's, let's just spiritualise this a little bit more, the meal and the oil, all right? In the Old Testament, the meal offering represented Jesus in the temple. Jesus himself said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. So there's a picture there that the meal is Jesus. Yeah, going into the Old Testament typology now, alright? Now the oil. What is the oil? Well, that's the picture of the Holy Spirit, you see. So therefore, we can take this, not just as the principles of God providing financially, but we're back to our daily walk with the Lord. How do we grow in Jesus? How do we become more filled with the Holy Spirit? The answer, give and it will be given. Until we are giving away to others that which the Lord has already done in us, we can't expect him to do any more. You see the point? Whatever you've received from the Lord thus far, until you've given it away and used it all up, you won't get any more. That's the principle. We only receive more from the Lord when we've given away and shared what we already have. I.e. The more you love other people in practical service, being there when they need you, sharing their burdens, the more you love others, the greater will be the supply of God's love shed abroad in your heart. You see what I mean? Um, the water flows when you turn the tap on. You see, you go to the kitchen, you turn the tap on. And as water comes out, more comes through. 
And that's, that's what it's got to be. And for us, the turning on that tap is financial giving. That's what turns on the tap of financial blessing. And the reason that the Bible goes on so much like this, I'm convinced, is this. You see, we grow in the Lord by denying self. And I will tell you, there is little as selfless as sacrificial giving, especially when it's anonymous. Now, giving can't always be. I'm not slavish about that. But the point about giving, when giving sacrificially is part of your life, anonymously where you can, all right. You see, there's no thanks. There's no praise for you. There's nothing in it for us at all. It's pure sacrifice. And that's why it's so good for us. Because it's pure sacrifice. There's nothing for self to feed on. And, and, and it's why we do so little of it. Because there's nothing in it for our sinful natures. The only thing for us in giving sacrificially is the Lord himself. He's all the thanks you're going to get. But isn't he all the thanks we want? Can you see? But the trouble is for our sinful natures, the Lord is not good enough. Can you see? So the point is that to really give financially, sacrificially, oh it's selfish, oh it hurts the sinful nature, and good that it does, good on it, because our sinful natures need hurting. But I'll tell you, the more we give in every area, the more we receive from the Lord. Now in drawing this to a close, let me say, but if a talk like this has made anyone feel a bit uncomfortable, let me just say this. Good. Because it's meant to. It's meant to. You know, I mean, all this stuff in the Bible, you know what I mean? When the New Testament was written 2,000 years ago and Jesus said these things to people, or Malachi, it was as unpopular then as it is now. They didn't like it any more than us. But it is the way. Denying self. Carrying the cross. And uh, I really do believe that this is an issue where the Lord really wants to take out the drawn sword of his spirit and, and maybe just do a little bit of slicing up. You know what I mean? Because unless we renounce everything that we have, we cannot be his disciple. And what I do know is that ultimately, if the wallet is not renounced, I frankly don't believe that very much in our lives is. Because if the wallet is not renounced, if our wallet is not converted, then we are in wrong relationship to unrighteous mammon. And if we're in wrong relationship to unrighteous mammon, what did Jesus say? I'm not going to entrust you with the true riches. So remember, I'm not saying you've got to give away everything you have. I've been very careful not to say that. But I'm saying that giving must be a regular part of our lives all the time but sacrificial time giving must be there as well, here and there, as the Lord leads. And yeah, God will prosper us. He will prosper us financially as well. So, give and it shall be given. The widow certainly found out how true that was. We will continue next time.